Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. My name is Mickey. I'm a worship arts coordinator at Baylife Church. And I'm Travis, and I'm the teaching pastor at Baylife Church. And we want to welcome you to the Stone Table. guys thank you so much for joining us and welcome back to season two of the stone table the season table season two (laughs) see this you never joined me well it feels cultic it feels a little culty all right so i give up yeah i'm not you need to you need to cut the chant all right i'm not gonna do the chant anymore however shout out to my girl grace for chanting along with me oh yeah you got a text this week somebody Yes. It, it was Grace who was yes. like, hey, I chanted right I ch- alongside I you. chanted with you, girl. So yeah. appreciate and shout out to see, you. See, I said somebody somewhere <laughs> was chanting. And, yes. And at the very least, Grace chanted with you. She did. Yeah. Well, Bless her. we are in season two of That's the right. Table, which is super duper exciting. We've been lining up some really cool guests. And uh, it includes a lot of people. We've got authors. Uh-huh. We've got musicians. Artist, yeah, I am. I'm very, very excited, and, and they're kind of all over the world. So that's been yes. fun too. Like we're we're trying to coordinate interviews, and we're like, okay, so what time is it in Paris? Because we have to do this yeah. at a time where everyone is awake, right? And, and even within the U.S. and the states, yeah. we are talking with people all over the country. So yeah. that is so cool. Super, um, super cool stuff coming up. We also have a new Instagram, which do. is uh, the first time I've been on social media in years mm-hmm. because I'm convinced that. Social media is the devil. I can't argue with you there. I agree. But however, I, I, but <laughs> we're, we're, we're trying to, to use what um, the enemy meant for evil in, <laughs> in godly ways. That's uh, right. So, so yeah, you can follow us at the stone table podcast mm-hmm. on Instagram and there we'll be doing some giveaways and some contests and we'll also be kind of keeping you up to date on some of the behind the scenes stuff with the show. So that's another new thing that has come with a new season yeah and and what we mean by behind the scenes is just uh, our cat augustine yeah it's mostly pictures of our cat yeah (laughs) who really really likes our podcast console uh so i think he likes the bright colors on it Uh, can cats see color you know i don't know but i'm convinced he can so i feel like i always heard that cats saw in black and white i thought that was dogs you yeah. guys, we don't know anything about it. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't even know who told me that. It's probably a lie. Yeah. Well, anyway, so by behind the scenes, we mean just pictures of our funny cat who mm-hmm. likes to sometimes join us when yes. we do podcasts. The thing is, whenever we want him to talk into a mic or something, he, he won't, won't do it. He won't do it. Yeah. So yeah. he's obstinate. Yeah. However, we take pictures. So That's true. you can see that feature on our Instagram page. So we are very excited to be able to update you guys on all sorts of things like guests and behind the scenes and our cat and all that. So yes, absolutely. And speaking of guests, we have an awesome one lined up for today. Yes, we do. So today's conversation is with Glenn Packiam and Glenn Packiam is the associate senior pastor of New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado. He's also a songwriter. He was involved in a worship project called the Desperation Band. And Glenn also has his Doctor of Theology and Ministry from Durham University over in the UK. And he's an Anglican priest. So Glenn is a man of many talents. He is. And we're talking with him about his book called Blessed, Broken, and Given. 
And kind of the subtitle of it is How Your Story Becomes Sacred in the Hands of Jesus. And it is a phenomenal book. Yes, so great. I I really enjoyed the book and I loved how uh, he divided the book up into three sections. Right, Uh, that are kind of in that title. Yes, that's right. So the first movement is blessed and the second movement is broken and the third movement is given. Mm -hmm. And here he talks a lot about uh, Jesus and at the Last Supper in which he takes the bread blesses it, breaks it, and gives it. Right. And he kind of applies that movement to our lives as Christians. Yeah. Just like Jesus takes bread, blesses, breaks, and gives it, he also does that with our lives. And yeah. so he he talks about uh, God blessing us with a, a new name and, mm-hmm. and making whole what sin has broken. And then he talks about the fact that sin has broken us, uh, both our personal sin, but also when we've been sinned against and, and suffered hurt and pain. And then he talks about how God uses this movement of being blessed and broken so that we can be given for the life of the world. And he's drawing Mm. on Jesus's uh, language in John six there. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's an incredible book. It's so good. It's so fascinating the way he kind of maps this movement onto our lives. And the conversation is really rich. It is so rich. It's so good. And I just love the way that he just takes something as ordinary as a piece of bread mm-hmm. and just really parses it out to yeah. apply to us in, in such a such a real and relevant way. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. And also I got a little hungry. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I definitely <laughs> I definitely wanted to carb load after this interview. Yes, yes. <laughs> so we are so excited for you to hear our conversation with Glenn. And so we're gonna stop talking and we're gonna get <laughs> right into it. So with that being said, here's our conversation with Glenn Packiam about his book, Blessed, Broken, Given. So Glenn, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We're so great to have you streaming or grateful to have you streaming in from Colorado. Thanks, Travis and Mickey. Great to join you today. So I've got to tell you this. um, When I was in high school, my entire youth group took a trip to see Desperation Band at a conference (laughs) And I think it was in, I think it was in Lakeland. I, I mean, I'm, it was I'm nearby. I don't know. Sure. It was nearby. And, mm-hmm. and I remember thinking it was the coolest thing in the whole world. So if, <laughs> if only my youth group friends could see that, uh, I'm doing a podcast with Glenn yeah. from Desperation <laughs> Band, they would all be incredibly oh. jealous. Well, uh, that, that's, <laughs> that's fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, but obviously, you know, you, you were involved in the Desperation Band mm-hmm. and kind of born out of Colorado, but your story doesn't start in Colorado. Uh, you actually share this a little bit in your book that you were born in yeah. Malaysia and there was a whole yeah. journey of how you ultimately came to the States and became involved in leading yeah. worship. So I would love to hear just a little bit about how you ended up there before we talk about kind of the next step of your story. Yeah. So I'm from Malaysia. Um, uh, my parents, uh, my dad was born in Malaysia, my mom in Singapore. They met at the university of Singapore and then moved to Malaysia um, by the time I, both my sister and I were born in Malaysia and, and I was, you know, grateful to have been born in a Christian home. Although my, my dad was not raised as a Christian. He was raised Hindu. Mm-hmm. He converted as, as he was dating my mom. My mom was at least at the very least a nominal Christian. Mm. But what was amazing is the Lord began to get a hold of both of them and, and, and they stepped into uh, a very personal born again, kind of experience and a radical commitment of their lives to Christ. And that just began to, to, you know, that flame began to burn brighter and brighter. And 
by the time I was about nine or 10 years old, my parents felt like the Lord was calling them to do something really radical, which was uh, to, to step out of their jobs and to move to the States to go to Bible college. So I was 10. My sister was 13. We moved from Malaysia to Portland, Oregon. My parents went to Portland Bible College. Uh, we lived there for three years. And I mean, those were really sweet and amazing years. We saw the Lord come through with, uh, you know, speaking of desperation, when you're in this place of desperation, <laughs> right, desperate yeah. need, yeah. Uh, sometimes, sometimes that's the moment where you really see the Lord come through. So there's stories of provision and mm. uh, grace for our family in, in such a difficult time. And um, we lived there for three years and then we moved back to Malaysia um, in, in the summer of 1991. I finished up my high school years there. And then I came back to the States to go to college. I went to school in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Okay. And, uh, and then from there, I uh, was connected with New Life Church in, in Colorado Springs and, and uh, I have actually been on staff at New Life for 20 years wow. now, which is oh my crazy. Gosh. Yeah. So that's kind of the nutshell story. met my wife at uh, college. We've been married 19 years. We have four oh. kids. Wow. And uh, yeah. You're, yeah. you're basically tenured at New Life Church. Yeah. Like you are, <laughs> yeah, I think so. Pretty much. I think well, we're, we're at the stage now where they're inventing positions for me because <laughs> I won't leave. That's awesome. That's so awesome. And, and I think you mentioned in your book you were 17 when you moved to the States for good. That's true. Yeah, yeah. A couple months wow. before my 18th birthday. Uh, yeah, so it was pretty young to make a move around the world yeah. by yourself. Yeah, yeah, so. for sure. But even since then, you have come a long way. You studied for a doctorate in Scotland and you became an ordained uh, priest. England, yeah. yeah. Okay. In England. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, you became an ordained priest in, in Acna, right? Is that yeah, the word? I'm Anglican Church in North America. Awesome. Which is an interesting thing. I mean, obviously I serve in a non-denominational church, mm -hmm. but I felt like the Lord was calling me towards Anglican ordination. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I think part of that is a bit of redemptive, his redemptive work of my own story and history. My mom mm. uh, comes from three or four generations of Anglicans. And, and that's the background in, in Christianity that she had, even though, you know, eventually they, they shifted into non-denominational world. Okay. But, but, but for me, it's a tradition that has helped me understand uh, some of the rich Richness of the early Christian heritage, um, richness of historical worship practices. So, I, you know, here's me, this rock and roll worship guy, <laughs> yeah. you know, or wannabe rock and roll worship guy. But coming to understand in a deeper way the ancient and historic practices of the church mm. and, and how the both and work together, how the Lord uses both and. And so yeah. uh, Anglicanism is in, in many ways a good middle ground between the historic practices and the sort of uh, evangelical or, or even charismatic expression of faith. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. You were actually Travis. You were raised. Yeah, American. I was raised in the. I was raised in the Episcopal Church, uh, but I was raised huh. in kind of a conservative, mm -hmm. uh, a conservative Episcopal Church. Um, yeah. And man, we, I mean, we're so appreciative, especially of a lot of the three streams approaches that you see yeah. in C4SO yeah. and uh, Bishop Todd Hunter. Uh, love. I love that middle way approach to mm -hmm. drawing from mm -hmm. the ancient and what the spirits do. Yes. Yeah. That's so cool. Yes. I'm, I'm interested to know how, how did you make this journey from being kind of a, a worship leader to wanting to study at a doctoral level and then ultimately going to, to your role now as a lead pastor at the downtown yeah. congregation? Yeah. Well, God only knows, right? I mean, he, he's <laughs> sure. the one who, who leads us. We're just trying to follow his lead. Yes. But, 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 you know, in hindsight, you kind of look back and you say, okay, these traces were there. And I think in my teenage years, there was this hunger to 
to answer sort of the Father's desire in John 4 to have worshipers that, are in, that, that worship him in spirit and in truth. Mm. And, you know, in my, in my youth, I think uh, it was really, if you want to say, focused on the worship in spirit and, mm-hmm. and uh, awakening kind of this uh, experience and encounter with the Lord. But I was always a theology nerd. I mean, I was always the guy on the band trips sitting in the van or, in the, you know, on a flight or whatever with a C.S. Lewis book or mm-hmm. some N.T. Mm-hmm. Wright book, you know, some theology. And, and, and I realized I... I, I um, I was, I was ne- never quite at home as a pure muso, you know, pure musician <laughs> guy. Sure. Yeah. In fact, I've always had the good fortune of being surrounded by people who are much more talented than I am. But I love the, I love theology and I love studying the Bible. My undergrad was theological historical studies. Mm-hmm. And so in 2011, so I, I mean, I, probably a necessary part of the story is, is the scandal of our founding senior pastor in late 2006. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm that kind of became a catalytic moment where it began to make me pay attention to say, Lord, what does it actually mean to be a pastor? What does it mean to serve in a local church? Mm. What does it mean to follow you? Um, what does it mean to, 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 to be involved in your work? And, and so along that way, the Lord was not only reawakening my own relationship with him, but was kind of refining my sense of vocation, my sense of calling. Mm. Mm. Okay. And, and, and so part of that was let, let's go back to school. So I went back to seminary, uh, I actually didn't uh, finish my my mas- master's at Fuller because I'd had an existing master's in, in a different field and and on a whim uh, applied at Durham University in the UK. Cool. Um, you know the the British model is much more hey if you're ready to research and write and make an original contribution then then they can kind of make a way for that to happen and so I, I was able to take the years that I'd done at Fuller my undergrad and my existing master's. And the best proposal I could try to write, and sure. and, uh, and and got in. But but I did I did make the focus of my doctoral research um, a theology of hope and contemporary worship, sort of how hope mm. is experienced and expressed in contemporary worship songs and services. So in all of it, I think the Lord's hand is on it in weaving this tapestry together. It mm. wouldn't be the sort of thing that you'd script out, you know. When sure. You're yeah. But in hindsight, you're like, well, how good and faithful the Lord has been. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Well, I feel like that that tapestry of kind of your experiences and your interests and even sort of your um, different denominational engagement between non-denominational and the Anglican Church, it, it really shows in this book that you've written, Blessed, Broken, and Given. Mm. Yeah. I, I can just see that you're drawing in kind of a rich tapestry across the spectrum of the the historic faith. And mm. it feels like, and maybe I'm off in this, but it feels like this was a book that uh, it, it seems as though it was the result of a lot of reflection and, and that yeah. you were kind of drawing on a lot of experiences yeah. and, and synthesizing it together. So I guess I'm curious, what what was the the moment or what were the events that spurred you to write this book and begin this process? Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that it feels like a synthesis, uh, Travis. I, that certainly is the hope, mm-hmm. um, and it and it did it, it did emerge out of a lot of reflection. I think um, before we started one of our congregations, New Life Downtown, which is our kind of our our first uh, offsite congregation at New Life. Um, before that, we were doing a Sunday evening service, and and Brady Boyd, our new senior pastor, kind of encouraged me. He's like, let's 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 have you do this Sunday evening service and have you experiment with incorporating some of these historic liturgical practices Mm -hmm. and all of that. And so as we began doing weekly communion and confession and saying the Nicene Creed, somewhere along the way, 
I began to realize why, you know, early Christians made the Lord's table their central practice. Yeah. Not only is it is it a central practice, but it's a centering practice. Yeah. You know, it kind of, it forms you. It's formational. It's formative. And as I began to reflect on that more and read on that and think on that, I realized that that these words that we say about Jesus and the bread, that he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it, actually are a beautiful way of speaking about the Christian life, mm. speaking yeah. about our life in Christ, um, our life in Christ, our life in his hands, just like the bread was in his hands. Um, and, and individually that has a resonance, how Jesus takes us and blesses us, that, that who we are uh, at the core of our identity is not a miserable, rotten sinner that God sort of tolerates because Jesus died on the cross, right. but rather God's original good creation that he called good and that he blessed. And yes, that sin has tainted and marred, but that God redeemed and, and reinstated. Mm. Um, I mean, Ephesians 1 and Genesis 1 are really fun to read back to back because you kind of see this reinstated uh, thing happening where we're seated with Christ now, blessed with every spiritual blessing. That's how it was in the beginning. And then even our brokenness, you know, our, our pain, our frailty, our sin, our shame, our suffering, uh, can all retain a kind of meaning or, or find a kind of peace and wholeness when they're placed in Jesus's hands. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then to be given is about purpose and about a, a sense of uh, even our ordinary moments can matter to God. Our, our, we can be uh, on mission with Jesus in every moment. So the deeper I began to reflect on that, I thought this is a great way for helping people make a connection yeah. between something we do at church mm. and something that we are Mm. as Christians. Yeah. I re I really like that. That's a great picture. Oh. Um and I really liked the the prelude to your book. You have mm. a section where you talk about sacramental seeing and mm. I thought it was uh, especially important when we're talking about how God uses the ordinary to reveal his glory. Um especially when we're talking about something as simple as bread. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. which then, by the way this yeah. book made us crave bread yeah. extensively <laughs> the entire time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And the funny thing is most of my family is gluten-free. So oh, no way. <laughs> oh, man. So I, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper in that section that you wrote. How do we develop the ability to see the world like this in a sacramental way? Yeah, Mickey, that's that's great. And 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 sacramental maybe for people listening, you're like, what what is that? I mean, is a sacrament something spooky? I mean, the <laughs> earliest Christians the earliest Christians thought of a sacrament as just a visible sign of an invisible grace. Mm -hmm. It basically it's a it's a way to express that something is going on here beyond what we can explain. And Christians have fought, you know, in the since the medieval era yeah. about what's happening with the bread. And mm -hmm. honestly, I'm not really concerned about that so long as we can say something more is going on than, mm -hmm. than we are always yeah. aware of. And isn't that the truth with God? Something is all, something more is always going on than what mm. we can see. It's Jacob in the book of Genesis waking up from his stairway to heaven dream and saying, surely the Lord is in this place, though we did not know it, though I did not know it. Mm. And so sacramental seeing is that the idea of saying God made his world to be filled with his glory. And yes, all is not as it should be. And yes, things are broken and, and fallen. And yet there are these traces, these fingerprints, if you will, not only of God's nature, uh, but, but hints and signs of God's glory. And sacramental seeing is a way of seeing the natural world 
as a sign of mm-hmm. God's invisible attributes. How does the sunset, how does the snow, I, I, we're in Colorado, we had 90 degree, a 90 degree day two days ago, and then this morning mm-hmm. we woke up to three inches of snow. You know? Oh my wow. gosh, I'm so jealous. Crazy, yeah. crazy. But, but, at this, like, but, but to say, wow, how can I see the wonder of this? And how does this uh, reveal something remarkable about God and mm. about his, um, his character and his, his work in the world. So, so it, it, it's sometimes we think we have to transcend our natural moments. Mm. I got to get to more prayer meetings. I got to get to, I got to have an ecstatic experience with God. And I'm, listen, I'm all for that. And I've experienced uh, many of those things, but the, the sacramental seeing says, actually God is always invading our world and our space, even when we're not aware of it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that kind of cuts against sort of the naturalistic way that many of us are trained to view the world where when we can't explain it any other way, that's when God's mm-hmm. done something miraculous. Mm-hmm. And then when we can explain it some other way, well, then that's, you know, that's just nature running its right. course. And so it makes God distant. And the only time we actually yes. encounter God is when, when we can't explain something or, or when, you know, the, the tumor disappears or, or when it, yes, yes, it, yeah. you know. That, that, that's it. And we tend to, like you said, we, we think of the world as a two, a two steer, two level, you know, kind of two story home, the natural world, and then upstairs is a supernatural. Right. But that's not how the Hebrews in the Old Testament, the people of Israel saw the world. They saw it as this is God's world. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Not the Lord reigns and so up there it means something significant. Mm, so mm-hmm. it, it, God's activity is always impacting and, 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 and filling um, our world. And the only question is, is, do we have eyes to see? Do we have ears to hear? Do we have hearts to respond? Right. And do we want to join God uh, in this work? Well, that sacramental worldview is, is kind of foundational for understanding these these three works of God that you talk about in the book. Um, you, you start off with the idea of blessing and that, mm-hmm. that God originally blesses creation and that, that original blessing still says something to us. But, but I know one of the things you mentioned in the book, and I was even thinking it as we got to that chapter, is that this idea of blessing in our culture can be really easily misunderstood. Yeah. And so I guess I'm just wondering, when, when we talk about blessing— what does the Bible say about God's people being blessed? And then maybe what are some of the ways that culture misunderstands that? Well, let's start with that second one first, because yeah. <laughs> all we need to do is look at hashtag blessed. blessed. <laughs> you know, yeah. it gets associated with, with basically it gets associated with the American dream. You yeah, know, that, I get uh, you're, you're quote unquote winning at life. You could substitute hashtag blessed for hashtag winning, winning you know, yes. and, and, and that that's not what the scripture has in mind. No doubt there are some, elements of this in the Old Testament that make you think that the blessing of God is evidenced by material prosperity and all of that. Mm. And that, man, I don't want to totally decouple those two things because th- those often are gifts from God. And, sure, and we, yeah. we should, the book of Deuteronomy, it says, when you get in the land and when you do you know, um, uh, flourish, don't say that your hand has done this for you. Give God the glory. So we are meant to give God the credit for it. 
the trick comes when we materialize blessings to where it's only prosperity instead of recognizing that the greatest and the truest blessing is to have God name you, is to have God define your identity. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for human beings, that means to be made in the image of God, to, to carry his nature, to be able to, to be called, mm-hmm. to reflect his uh, wisdom and love and rule into the world. Uh, that that is the original blessing uh, that was on that was on um, the human race, and so to recover that is again to re recover our original vocation, mm. to be reinstated with a sense of authority to say, look, this is what we were meant to be. So there, there's all kinds of things tied into it. It's it's to be beloved, mm-hmm. it's to be named and known, and it's to have this high call to reflect God's rule and wisdom into the world. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that uh, part about God naming us because I was actually going to bring up, uh, bring up that section in in the blessed uh, movement of your book, because Mm -hmm. I just love that being named, it shows us where we came from, but also who we'll become. And I think that sometimes we forget as believers, those of us who enter into the faith, that we come into a brand new name, a brand new family. And yes. I even think about when we get baptized, we we are baptized into the the new name, which is the name of the Father, yes. the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right. And that should yeah. really change the way that we view ourselves in our new life. Amen, Mickey. Amen. <laughs> My dad, when he was a Hindu, his name was Indra. And then when he became a Christian, he changed his name to David. And of course, you see name changes in the Bible, uh, Abram, Abraham. um, And there are others, Jacob, Israel, that that, hint of a name change there, Sarah, Sarai, Sarah. But there is something about the name uh, in in the ancient world that represented your nature, Mm -hmm. your character, even your destiny. And and to know that to be blessed is, is like you said, to be to, you get to share uh, the name. You get to be named by the name of Jesus Himself, the name of the great Triune God, and and how holy that is. But then also to be named with a with a personal, deeply personal name, yeah. um, whatever that might uh, be for each one of us. Maybe for some people, they've heard the ugly names they were called. You know, use, useless, good for nothing. Uh, you're 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 a mess up. You know. And, and instead to say, no, no, God sees you as beloved, as precious, as loved, and, and to cherish those names uh, in our heart. Yeah, that's yeah. good. And I know that certainly one of the, one of the sources of our, our shame, it, you kind of bring up in the, the next movement in your book when you talk about brokenness. And I, I loved this section on brokenness because I think there's kind of there's kind of a debate that rages in theology world and there's there's certain people who don't want to use the term brokenness to describe sin because they feel like it absolves us of responsibility yep. and and yep. it's something that's happened to us rather than something we're guilty we of did. which I thought you just addressed so well because in in unpacking this idea of brokenness you say yeah I mean there are there are uh, there are senses of guilt that result from sin we've committed. Mm-hmm. But there was something I had a, a professor to me say a couple of years ago in seminary that, that we're always, we are sinned against sinners. And I think that theme of brokenness captures the fact that, you know, it's not just that we are guilty, but also we've been sinned against. And, yes, and yes. that has wounded us just as well as the things that we have done. And so uh, yes. I would love to just kind of unpack this theme of brokenness and how that can... Yeah affect us as we think about that it's i mean it's so important to get it right because 
you're right. Sometimes people use the word broken as a bit of a cop out and say, oh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just broken. Um, as if that absolves us, absolves us of any sort of uh, action or responsibility, either culpability and responsibility mm-hmm. or, you know, resolve for the future. And I, I think biblically we can talk about brokenness in, in three ways, at least three ways. One is to talk about our frailty, the sense of mm-hmm. uh, being a, a now kind of fallen, finite uh, human being. It's really about our finite frailty. Uh, this is the the Psalm, Psalm 90, uh, Psalm 103, where it talks about the number of our days and that God knows that we are merely dust and he has compassion on us as a father has compassion on his children. Meaning there's no sin in being dust. You know, that's mm-hmm. what the psalmist is trying to say. Right. And, and so for us, there's a kind of brokenness that results from being mortal, from being uh, frail, from saying, gosh, you know what? I forgot. I failed. I, I only had so much capacity and I, I, I didn't to do this. Or like you alluded to, Travis, that we've been impacted by someone else's sin and we've been hurt. We've been wounded. And so that impacts our ability to love or not uh, love well. Mm. Um, but then the second kind of brokenness is a brokenness that comes of our own making, a, a, a brokenness that is really more about failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and think of this, we use this language when we say a broken relationship. Okay. Sociologists say that when there's a group of friendships, there's a kind of solidarity. And I'm making a circle here with my fingers for the people listening. Yeah. <laughs> and and when, some, when someone in the circle violates the trust of another, I trust that you're not going to gossip about me or I trust that you're not going to hurt me. But they violate it and they, they do one of those things or something like that. They're unfaithful to the friend or to a spouse. You have broken not only trust with that person, but you've broken the circle. You've broken something in that community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we we're, there's a lot of discussion these days about sin. Is sin only individual and personal? Look, if you read the Bible, sin absolutely has a social dimension to it. And yeah. whatever term we want to use to describe it. But this second kind of brokenness is a fracture. It's a fracture of relationships. And you see this early in Genesis. It's not just that Adam and Eve sinned against God. God exposes how they sinned against each other Mm, they failed each other and then the very next chapter cain and abel god exposes how cain failed his brother he was not his brother's keeper so we hardly get introduced to the concept of sin before we we recognize that sin has a, a social impact it's fragmentation has a ripple effect yeah um and then that leads right away to the third thing which is the kind of brokenness that really is about suffering but it's the result of the fallenness of the world. So mm-hmm. frailty, failure, fallenness. And the fallenness of the world breaks us. This is, again, where we use the language of brokenness. We say, my heart is broken for you, or my heart breaks. I, you know, I'm broken heart. Why do we say that? What we're saying is tragedy has, has struck close, and we're just, we're broken. It breaks us. It yeah. crushes us. So those are three different yet overlapping forms of brokenness. Uh, they impact one another. They absolutely, so because we live in a fallen world, we are frail. Because we're frail, we fail others. And because we failed others, we perpetuate the fallenness of the world. And, you know, yeah. on and on yeah. it goes. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll pause there. Well, see, but I love how holistic that is. Yeah. You know, that, that's not reductionistic and, and it's not simplistic, but it does mm-hmm. justice to the full weight of what's gone wrong in the world, both in our hearts and in the hearts of others that, that works itself out in mm-hmm. brokenness. And, and, and I think we have to name that as Christians. And, and I wonder if it's yeah. not even easier to name it now in this year when we see 
how yes. interdependent we are on other people, even with something like the spread of a virus, it becomes yes. so much easier to name it and, and acknowledge uh, how sin corrupts everything. That's that's very good. It it is being it is playing out right before our eyes. You yeah, know? and and there's a hopefulness to this. So, I am careful to say that this doesn't mean that you're forced into a corner of saying that God broke you. You know, God caused the cancer or whatever. Uh, we don't have to say that. We we can acknowledge that there is an evil one, and that we can we can acknowledge our own culpability mm-hmm. in it. At the same time. The principles of the sacramental worldview that we touched on that mm-hmm. says God is at work in his world still apply here. Mm-hmm. It, so, yeah. so even in the midst of brokenness, can God be at work? 100%. Yes. Yeah. The Bible is a story of God at work in a fallen world, in a broken world with broken people mm-hmm. who keep breaking relationships with one another. God doesn't retreat from that. God steps into that. Why? So that we will, if we would give him our brokenness, he will bring us his grace and his healing and wholeness. And that wholeness comes to us in, in a somewhat unexpected way. One, it comes as we learn vulnerability in, yeah. the, in the scriptures. It's called confession. Yeah, <laughs> You know, it, it's called confessing your sins to the Lord. It's called confessing your sins to one another. Um, and, and then beyond that vulnerability, it comes through a sense of um, community where, where as we are vulnerable with one another as we confess and and repent to one another actually we become the way uh that healing arrives to each other mm, so true and i think especially in light of uh sin in the sense of failure in which we f- we fail against each other and to we, we fail the lord i think re- repent confession and repentance are so important and um yeah, I think it's a, it's a great practice for us. Um, and as a church, I know you mentioned in your book that your church began to have weekly confession and yeah. repentance. And, and you mentioned that it started off a little weird because it's something that's yeah. maybe a lot of people haven't done, but it ended up shaping your community to confess yeah. in and receive forgiveness. And so yeah. uh, I really liked that. And, and I wanted to ask, how, how do we get in the practice of uh, facing brokenness? Uh, the practice of, mm-hmm. of confessing and repenting in order to yeah. face the brokenness and be transformed through it rather than kind of hiding it or denying it by saying, oh, it's yeah. just our brokenness. How do we really um, mm. collide with it and, right. and come to terms with it? Yeah. Yeah, tackle it head on. You, you know, I, I mean, I, I do think doing it in worship gets you in the habit. Mm. <laughs> uh, I mean, there are people who have never said, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, and and perhaps because they'd never heard, I'm sorry, you know, from a parent or from anyone in authority over them, and and so when you are in a group of people and you say, "Merciful God Almighty, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed. We have not loved you with our whole heart, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent." Whoa, yeah. we're only halfway through that prayer, <laughs> and already right. we're, you know, so. So, and, and, and so I would say one of the ways to do that is to use language that Christians have used for centuries. So that's a prayer from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. It's about 500 years old, maybe a little older. Um, <laughs> but, but when we started, because we're a non-denominational church, I knew that would spook people out. <laughs> so we, yeah. we started by adapting some verses from Psalm 51. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you know, people say, oh, Psalm 51 was what David prayed after he repented after Bathsheba. True. 
And yet it is in the community's songbook. Yeah. Yeah. You think about how strange that is. You know, yeah. it, it's in the community songbook. And actually the very last verse of Psalm 51 has nothing to do with David. It alludes to exile. Yeah. It alludes to, you know, for some of the listeners, maybe this is, this is something you may not have noticed. It, it talks about the walls being broken down and asking God to repair the ruins. That's exile. Exile was the result of spiritual adultery. Mm. So they are applying a prayer of repentance for personal individual adultery, for national corporate spiritual adultery. Yeah. Right. That's so. It's an amazing thing. And 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 I know that was a little rabbit trail, but we had to chase that one. No, but that that was well worth it. And, yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. No. Thank you for chasing that one. <laughs> so so you can use Psalm fifty one. You can use a prayer confession. And if you're a church that practices communion on a somewhat regular basis, once a month or whatever, uh, that's a perfect moment to do it as you're preparing for the table. Or it's just a great way to finish up the response to the sermon yeah. um, to say, yeah. why don't we all pray this prayer of repentance at the end of this sermon? And it just gets in our rhythm. And then maybe it, it affects the culture in our small groups and, and our, our one-on-one times. And yeah, all that. that's good. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's important too, and I, and this is what I love about the the Anglican liturgy is that you never repent without hearing the comfortable words, right? You never yeah. repent without yeah. hearing yeah. that your sins have been forgiven, forgiven. Um, and, and so it, it I think it shapes in us this posture and this understanding that uh, we never repent as those without access to grace, uh, yes. and, and we never acknowledge our sins before God with the fear in the back of our minds that He'll reject us because of it, right? That's exactly right. Psalm 51 opens with, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. David was already convinced about God's unfailing love before he he asked for mercy. Mm-hmm. And in a similar way, the, the prayer confession, most merciful God almighty, you, you got to start there. And the comfortable words that you're alluding to is something that Cranmer uh, added to the communion service, where he would have four scriptures being read uh, leading up to this this moment. And, and, and the first was, uh, you know, it, it, it's Jesus's invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. So you're confronted not with an angry kind of vision of God, but a gentle Savior who says, I know you're tired. I know that your sin is destroying you mm-hmm. more than it's angering me. I, you know, it's just Jesus, like, yes, your sin angers me, but isn't the real point here that your sin is actually destroying you? So come to me, all you who are weary. And then it switches to to kind of, you know, our, our longing and anyway, um, or, or God's longing for us for God so loved the world is the second verse. It's four uh, New Testament verses. And then I think the next one is. Um, you know, we have an advocate um, mm-hmm. uh, with Christ. I, I'm blanking out all First John, I think. Yeah. First John. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If anyone has sinned, you know, we can confess. And then, um, you, you know, the first Timothy passage after that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 So moving on to the given portion of the book, um, I think a lot of people think that being spent for the kingdom means running ourselves into the ground. I know I've been guilty of that before. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes it's hard to interpret what is the, what is the balance of being, uh, allowing ourselves to be submitted to the Lord for us to be mm-hmm. given. Um, and it's not necessarily the case that we need to run ourselves into the ground. So, um, what can, what does it mean uh, to be given or spent for the kingdom? And how is it different than just burning ourselves out? It's very good. And I'm so, thank you for phrasing it that way, Mickey. That's really a beautiful contrast. Uh, and I wish I had um, <laughs> highlighted that more in the book. But Eugene Peterson talks about 
the pastor who is busy is either busy because of his own vanity or because of his own laziness of mm -hmm. to not uh, decide and be intentional. And in a similar way, when we burn out, it's not often, it's in the name of Jesus, but it's not often because of Jesus. Right. It's often because of our own ego, our own uh, selfish ambitions, our own kind of illusion about what, you know, we need to accomplish for God. And so to be given, it first of all, has to be for the love of Jesus himself. In the book, I talk about the story of Jesus meeting Peter on the shores of the sea, uh, uh, sea of Galilee after the resurrection, Peter's return to fishing. And there's the sense in which Peter's second call, his reinstatement, if you will, is different than his first call. His first call was, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And perhaps what appealed to Peter about that was not the me part, follow me. Uh, maybe it was, oh, fishers of men. It, it's about a purpose. I, 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 you know, I got something uh, important to, to do. But I just want to say that the love of your calling is not enough to keep you from falling. Mm. It's not, there's a songwriter in me coming out. Yeah, <laughs> that was yeah. strong. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's not enough. to. It wasn't enough to sustain Peter because he, he turns away. He denies uh, Jesus three times. And so Jesus had to recalibrate it and say, Peter, Peter, do you love me? Not do you love the sheep? Not do you love the, 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 the food that you're going to give the sheep, i.e. the teaching, whatever? And even for us, it's not, do you believe in the cause? Do you love the church? Are you sold out for the kingdom? Because those are abstractions. Yeah. What Jesus wants us to know is, look me in the eyes. Do you love me? The first uh, part, the first step to being given is to be lit aflame mm. uh, by the love of yeah. Jesus or mm. with the love for Jesus. Yeah. And I think that, that that fire in many ways comes from our response to acknowledging our brokenness and finding God's grace in the midst of it. Yeah. Uh, to mm -hmm. see the mercy of Jesus should, and and I think it often does cause us to love him all the more. Oh, yeah. And that can become this fuel for yes. being given in many ways. Yes, absolutely. So you talk about this this great movement in your book of, of recognizing that, that what was lost by sin has been reinstated by Christ and, and that we've been given this new name and we acknowledge our brokenness and receive God's forgiveness, and then we're given and, and poured out for the life of the world. And, and, and one of the analogies that you use in that, that section on givenness uh, comes from the pandemic that took place in Carthage in 250 AD, and we were talking about this before yeah. we started the interview. Yeah. Uh, you wrote this book in 2019, long before pandemics 2018. were, or 2018. Yeah. So it, it came out in 2019, but I finished writing it in right, 2018. Right. So, so two yeah. years before pandemics and social distancing were household terms. <laughs> so it was prophetic in many ways. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so for listeners who aren't familiar with that piece of church history, kind of bring them up to speed just a little bit what what yeah. happened in Carthage and then I'd love to talk about our own moment that I think this parallels really well so Carthage is a city in North Africa kind of modern day Tunisia and there was a church leader there named Cyprian and he they the church there had already endured persecution there was some um, you know, persecution wasn't widespread. It wasn't everywhere, but there were sometimes particularly focused, acute instances of persecution. And Carthage was a site of, of that. And in the in about the 240s or so, uh, what you see happening is um, some Christians lapsed in their faith in order to end the, persecu the their persecution. And and they, you know, we kind of think, oh, how could they have done this? But again, we we weren't we didn't go through this and and. 
And so some of them, it, it was a simple quote unquote, but you know, from the Romans is saying, Hey, just sign this thing or just offer incense to the emperor and show that, yeah, you believe in Jesus, but ultimately you also worship the emperor. And remember that for Rome, they didn't outlaw Christianity because they were anti-Christian. They, they were pro-religions. There was all kinds of re- yeah. religions right. in the Roman era, right? The reason they, they, uh, they didn't like Christianity was because Christianity functioned more like a philosophy than a, ri- a religion. A religion in the ancient world was just a, sele- uh, you know, a collection of rituals that you did to your God for, for favors and for blessings. But a philosophy was a whole way of life. Well, Christianity kind of combined both of that. They said, our God is a supreme God. He's actually king. He's actually the real Lord, not Caesar. Caesar, and we're going to use all mm. your Caesar language and apply it to Jesus to sort of <laughs> yeah. troll the empire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and because of that, our whole way of life is going to run against. So Rome did not want their way of life disrupted. So anyway, th- that's why they began persecuting Christians and certain Christians made justifications of how they could get away with maybe just doing this one thing and then get on with it. Well, you can imagine that for Christians who did not do that, they mm-hmm. said, wait a minute, how, how could you, how can you return to church? This is, this is right. not okay. Um, nevertheless, here's a church that is already reeling from this impact of this persecution where we're trying to figure out how do we deal with kind of half hearted I mean, we would say in our language today, we might say a church of conservatives and liberals you right. know, mm-hmm. and, and forced to kind of worship together. We're like, I don't know, man. I saw you go fuzzy on that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Backslidden and then, Christians and Baptist yeah, terms. Backslidden, kind of yeah. worldly, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, and now on top of that, a pandemic breaks out. So Cyprian starts preaching to his church and he basically says two things. Number one, you need to show mercy because that's who your father is. Your father shows mercy. And they're like, well, okay, fine. And, and it's hard <laughs> enough to show mercy to one another. But then he says, actually, you need to show mercy to your quote unquote enemies. And now people are thinking about the neighbors who maybe reported them. I mean, imagine a pagan neighbor saying, Psst, I think my neighbor's a Christian and notifies the authorities and you get beaten up because of it or your yeah. uncle dies because of whatever. Right? And now you're supposed to show mercy to to them right. because they're sick. No, man. You're like, no, I'm glad you're sick. Let's call, let's go ahead and call that the judgment of God, yeah. you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. And, but that Cyprian was like, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to care for one another. And sociologist Rodney Stark at Baylor, he, he hypothesizes that maybe it was the way that Christians cared not only for each other, but for the pagan neighbors mm. um, during a time of pandemic. It, that may have had something to do with the spread of Christianity because Two things. One, if you recovered, you were likely immune, just like our virus yeah. today. Yeah. Uh, so Christians would have had maybe a higher survival rate than than pagans. And secondly, if once you were immune, you could go serve the pagans and not get sick. These pagans yeah. are like marveling at the Christians for two reasons. They're like, wow, you're serving me? And then mm-hmm. secondly, you're serving me and you're not getting sick. Yeah. It's yeah. A you know? <laughs> so so anyway, the, the, the point is, that in the midst of this pandemic, the church was able to show a radical mercy, a radical generosity, a radical hospitality mm. that made all the difference in the world. Yeah. yeah. And I think that applies so perfectly to our, our moment. I, I mean, culturally, we are fragmented. We yeah. live in a the most divisive moment politically that I can think of. Uh, yeah. But we're also in the midst of a pandemic in which people are increasingly afraid of each other and, and afraid of interacting with one another, which just drives a deeper wedge in between yeah. us. Yeah. And and it, it's it's at, at one moment one of the the scariest and darkest times that somebody can imagine. But at the same moment, it does feel like this Carthage-like window 
in which we as the church can can give ourselves for the sake of our neighbors. And and so I just wonder for for you as a pastor, I'm sure you've even been thinking about this. What is it what does it look like for us as Christians in this moment to be yeah. given and spent for the sake of our neighbors? We, we, we have to talk less, and I'm going to say something maybe a little strong. We, <laughs> we have to talk less about our rights and religious liberties and more about how we can serve the poor and the hungry and the needy in our communities. Mm. Um, it's a shame if the church is known for, quote unquote, taking a stand for our rights instead of taking a, a knee to serve and wash someone else's feet. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that's what it looks like to, to, to serve the world is to, is to bend down, to, to come low and, and to look at those who are in need and to say, doesn't matter if they're my uh, enemy or not. In fact, even more so if they are, uh, I'm obligated to love and to serve. And, and, and to be, to be fair, churches have done this churches all around the country have, have been doing food banks and delivering groceries and sewing masks. So so Christians are doing it. Sometimes it's the one or two noisy uh, pockets of evangelical Christianity (laughs) that get the attention, but, but churches are doing this. And I'm proud of that because that is our history. That is our heritage. Amen to that. Well, Glenn, thank you so much for joining us. We we are just so grateful for the time that you've given us and the time that you have spent writing this book. It is it's been so useful for us and yeah. I and I just know it will be for our listeners too. So thank you well, so much. You paid me a great compliment today by reading it and by engaging with it so well. <laughs> so thank you so much. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of The Stone Table. If you've enjoyed our conversation with our friend Glenn as much as we did, please be sure to rate and subscribe. You can also go ahead and follow our brand new Instagram, The Stone Table Podcast. For Bay Life Church, I'm Mickey, and this is The Stone Table. Stone Table.